Well, good morning, Village. Let's find our seats. I haven't seen them this morning, but I, I know um, Ken and Patty Ruggles, their son got married yesterday. And so we would congratulate Philip and Gabby. Um, but if you were to go to Ken and Patty today, and, and if you saw them or call them up or something and say, what is something that happened this last week? If Ken looks at you and says, you know, I had breakfast on Thursday. Maybe a bowl of cereal, the toast was a little burnt, I, I don't know. You'd be like, what are you talking about, right? Your son got married, you had this huge event, why aren't you talking about that? And this morning as we, as we think about the resurrection, I want to sort of use that as an intro to when there's a big event, we talk about it, right? We testify to it, we're witnesses of that. In Acts, we've been going through in the last few months, the key verse is Acts 1.8. And it says, you will receive power, but then you will be my witnesses. And so, this morning, we want to come to the resurrection thinking in terms of witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? And it's interesting, as I've studied Acts, something I never noticed before, but almost every time it talks about us being witnesses, it says, to the resurrection. That we are witnesses, we are proof that Jesus rose from the dead. We are proof that He changes lives. We are proof that He conquered sin. In Acts one they're talking about bringing on another person in leadership, beginning from the baptism of John. He had to have seen that. Until the day when He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Acts 2, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus was raised from the dead. We are witnesses to that. Acts 3.15, he's talking to, to the Jews. He says, you killed the author of life. You know, pleasant words. When God raised him from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Acts 4, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What's interesting is we see the early church, and as we see our instructions for how we are to be the church, the instruction is we're to be witnesses, not just of Jesus' death, but of His resurrection. The resurrection was the primary event that the church was called to be witnesses of. And so this morning I want to explore that a little bit. What does it mean to be a witness? You know, we've all seen the TV shows, right? You put someone on the stand and they take the oath. And what are they promising to do? They're promising to tell the truth. Now, we have some assumptions when they go on the stand. We assume that they've either saw or experienced what they're talking about. They're not just making it up. This is truth. And we assume that they're going to tell the truth. And so this morning as we... we think about being witnesses, I want to go back. I want to go back to that first resurrection morning. I want to walk to the tomb with the women, the very first witnesses. What a place of honor. And I want to experience what they've experienced because for us to be witnesses, we have to know the truth. We have to see and experience the truth. And then we want to talk about how can we talk about it? How can we say what we have seen? Because those early witnesses, they saw the truth and they told people about the truth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. And I want to dive into Matthew's account of the resurrection in that first morning. 
And to set the scene, as you turn there, Matthew 28, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you, a black hardcover one. Take that out. Read along with us. If you don't have one at home, take that home as our gift to you. But Matthew chapter 28, and we'll be starting in in verse 1. But as you're turning there to set the scene, on that Friday we just saw Jesus crucified. And He hung on the cross, and late in the day he, He said, It is finished. And that at that moment... Sin was paid for. The penalty for your sin and my sin and the sin of everyone who comes to Him was paid for. And He died on that cross. And as as the evening approached, as Sabbath approached, Joseph and some of the disciples asked for the body. And they got the body and they embalmed Him and they buried Him in Joseph's tomb. All quickly before the Sabbath started. And then the Sabbath started. And then if you just glance up from Matthew 28.1 to Matthew 20, the, the paragraph before in 27, now after this, all of a sudden it dawns on the Romans and Pilate, oh wait, this guy was popular. What if he disappears? That's a problem. And so they get together and, and someone approaches Pilate and says, you know, we remember what he said. He said, after three days, I will rise. Now as crazy as that sounds, let's not take any chances. And so they talked to Pilate and they arranged for a Roman guard to be there. A Roman guard who is trained in staying up, trained in guarding and protecting something and making sure nobody was going to steal this body. And then if that's not enough, they put a seal over the stone. And they had put this one and a half, two ton stone in front of the grave. They put a Roman seal, which probably has some wax on both sides and and a cord and, and... it is known that if you break a Roman seal without permission, that the consequences are grave. And so they're like, let's make sure that nothing can happen. And so this is, this is the setting. They secure the tomb. There is no way that this body can disappear. Can't be stolen. Nothing can happen to them. And that's the setup coming into Sunday morning. This is an impossible morning. And so we come to Matthew 28, verse 1. And, and point number one is we walk with the witnesses they saw. Witnesses have to have encountered or seen what they are testifying about. And so in these ten verses, we're going we're gonna to walk with them. We're going to see with them. We're going to experience with them. Verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Keep in mind the Sabbath would have gone from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Not allowed to do anything there. Not allowed to bring spices. Not allowed to to work in any way. Saturday evening would have been too late. And so they're like, this is the next possible time they can. And so they get up pre-dawn. So picture with me, when you were up before the sun this morning, some of you were, a few of you were. But these ladies get up that early. This is that important. And they're walking to the tomb and they have their spices and they're coming to warn the dead. They're, they're, they're coming to show their love and devotion and respect. And quite honestly, two days after the death, this is a, a rare thing. It's showing that devotion, showing that love and respect. Because who knows? I mean, how do you get spices in? They're, they, they don't know. What do you do with a body that's probably already starting to decompose? But we see from Matthew that the ladies let nothing stop them. No obstacle. The stone, decomposing body, guards. They were going to go because they loved Jesus. 
We have their names, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In the Mark passage, we have more names. All of these are just showing that there were real witnesses, real people. If it said some anonymous lady went and we heard about this through the grapevine, we'd be like, yeah, right. But no, these were real people that they knew people could talk to. And Mary and Mary are like, we were there. We were there. So in verse 1, the sun's just starting to come up. We're walking to the tomb. And in verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And, and Matthew jumps right into the power of the resurrection, the power of God on display. This earthquake, the angel rolling this huge stone away. We know that it was very difficult to, to remove. The stone was set in a groove, a, a downhill groove. One and a half, two tons, like I said, they roll it into place. It just, you know, clunks into place. And there is no moving that without a number of men and some tools to get it away. It didn't take, it didn't take God but one angel. And the angel came, the earth shook, and the stone was taken away. The angel's appearance was magnificent. His appearance in verse 3 was like lightning. His clothing, white as snow. And all of this is setting a scene of the grandeur of God and and to be in awe of what God has done. In fact, in verse 4, for fear of Him, for fear of just the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They're just out cold. They've never seen anything like this. Or it's just God with His um, holy sedative. I don't know. But they're out. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, because the, the women's first response at seeing this, at seeing the angel, seeing the stone rolled away, the guards out cold, is fear. Right? Wouldn't that be our response too? If it's not, we've got to check our pulse or something. They, they are, they're, they're seeing something so bizarre, and the angel rightfully starts by saying, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek the Jesus who was crucified. He knows that the question they'll have is what happened to the body? What happened? And God graciously sends His messenger to answer that question. So there's no concern. Did the Romans take Him away? Have they somehow burned His body or destroyed His body? What's happened here? No, God in His grace left a messenger that said, let me tell you what happened. And that messenger reveals truth. So He reassures them, don't be afraid. I know what you're here for. God-given knowledge of the purpose of their visit. And then he says, he is not here. And, and I don't know if they're feeling a little snarky. They'd be like, yeah, we know. We see. But he goes on. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And so the angel says, he said he was going to rise. He's gone. He's risen. He's alive. Come see. And, and he brings them in to see some of the proof and see what is going on. Then the instruction to them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they come to the tomb with their spices. They come to mourn the dead and the tomb is empty. The angel says he's not dead. Now go tell people. Go be witnesses. In verse nine or in verse eight, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And so they did what he said. That, now it's interesting here. Do you, do you catch the mix of emotions? 
fear and great joy. Now, before we criticize them, wouldn't we still have this fear and this awe and this confusion and joy all at the same time? They haven't seen Jesus yet. They've just had the words of the angel with this grand display. And so with these mixed emotions, they run to obey, to tell the disciples. And I love verse 9. I love verse 9 because Jesus, he, he shows up to, to instruct, to comfort, and to be with them. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! Hello! How you doing? And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now Matthew includes this. Matthew loves details. And I think he includes this because to show that he's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. If you're able to touch him, if you're able to take hold of his feet, he's real. He's really alive. And they come to worship him because they have seen a miraculous resurrection. The risen Christ is in front of them. Then Jesus says to them the same thing the angel did. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so they've experienced the resurrection, they've seen the resurrection, and then the command is to go. Go and tell people. Go and be witnesses. We know from Luke's passage that they do go and they, they find, especially Peter and John, and Peter and John and Luke, it says, they, they think they're nuts. They think it's an idle tale, a fairy tale. And, and so these two women, and picture it, it's still early in the morning, they're mourning the loss of their, their Messiah, their friend, their mentor, their rabbi. And these, these women come early in the morning and they say, he's, he's risen? And they say, it can't be. That's impossible. And we know then that, that Peter and John then ran to the tomb. And they went inside and they saw the empty grave clothes. We'll talk about that in a minute because that had to be surreal. They saw the empty grave clothes and they were convinced. And they left looking for a risen Savior. So that's walking through the morning of the resurrection. That's experiencing the resurrection along with Mary and Mary, along with the people that were there. I just want to break it down. What was the parts of their witness? What did God give them that they could see, that they could experience as part of the witness? And the three words we want to remember this morning is power, truth, and person. Power, truth, and person. For those of you that love to fill in blanks, I just gave you all of page one. So you're happy and you can listen now. The first part of their witness that we saw from that text is they were awed by the power of the resurrection. They were awed by the power of the resurrection. As I told the story, we tried to bring that in with the earthquake and the angel descends and his appearance is amazing. The stone is rolled back. This is not possible. No one was going to sneak to open the stone. Either the guards helped, they left, or an angel of the Lord rolled the stone away because Jesus had risen. I'm going with the last one. And ultimately, Jesus was alive, and that showed the power of God. Dead to living. Death to life. And, and, and so they were awed at the whole spectacle, but they were awed at what God had done. And this is an awe that surpasses anything we experience. I know our high school group this, this winter went up to Yosemite, right? And in Yosemite, you go through the tunnel view and you're in this dark tunnel 
It goes on and on and on. Not one of the ones you want to hold your breath during and hope you make it. But And you get to the other side and you go from this dark tunnel to one of the most spectacular views on the planet, I would argue. And it's amazing, right? High schoolers that were there, it's just amazing. And you park and you get out and you take pictures for a half hour. And it, it's just amazing, this view of the valley. That's nothing compared to the awe of the resurrection. That's nothing to seeing a, a two-ton stone rolled away, an angel dazzling in dazzling glory, and to see empty grave clothes because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's the kind of awe we want to experience that they experienced at the resurrection. And so part of their witness is just awed by the power of the resurrection. This is an amazing thing. But then also we see God's grace as He shows them the empty tomb, as He shows them the grave clothes, as He explains what's happened. And the second part of their witness is that they were convinced of the truth of the resurrection. Convinced of the truth of the resurrection. We already talked about it. For us to be witnesses, we have to believe it. We have to believe in something that's true. If this isn't true, then don't be witnesses of it because you're lying. But we see even right from the start, the angel and God in his sovereignty is bringing in the proofs that they would know it's true. And just think about some of the facts that are listed in just this story. Number one, the empty tomb. There, there is no question the tomb was empty. In fact, if you look back through Hebrew literature and Roman literature who had a vested interest in proving this wrong, all of it started with assuming the tomb was empty because they couldn't prove otherwise. The body was gone. And no one, no one could dispute that. Even today, we, if you look back at the evidence, you can't dispute that the body was gone. And the disciples were preaching a risen Savior, a, a message people that the leaders didn't like in Jerusalem. And if they had the body, they would have been like, here he is. He's, he's dead. You're, you're lying. And no one could ever do that. Because the tomb was empty. So the question isn't, is the tomb empty? But, but why is it empty? Why, and, and so... One of the facts is, is that the tomb was empty, and, and we can't logically dispute that. One author said we can't logically or, logically or historically deny that Jesus was killed. We can't logically or historically deny that his body was placed in the grave, whose location was known by all. We can't logically deny that there was a Roman guard there. And we can't logically or historically deny that the fact is the tomb was empty. And so, so we've got to start processing that, and they had to process that. You know, another fact that, that was shown was that the stone was moved. I've mentioned it several times, but that was something that was incredible. That was an incredible act of God's power. When they walked up, they knew that that couldn't have been the disciples who were still moping around despondent in the room. They didn't do it. Another thing we, we saw is the broken Roman seal. And this is one of the, the facts that, that we know that Rome was doing everything they could to make sure that no one got into this tomb. They didn't realize that God would open it, not so Jesus could get out. God would open it so we could see. So we could see that empty tomb. 
And so the, the, the Roman seal whose consequences for breaking that would be crucifixion, upside down, the Roman seal was gone. Another fact we see, and then this goes on in the Matthew passage 11 through 15, the Roman guards left their post and got rewarded. That alone is one of the proofs that we know something weird is going on here. Because Roman guards, if they leave their post, if, if something happens, we've seen this with, with Acts with some of the prison situations, if they leave their post or fail, fail their duties, they are executed. And instead of being executed, they are given a large sum of money and told, tell everyone the disciples stole the body. And again, anyone could have checked on this. <clears throat> Another fact here that convinced them of the truth of the resurrection were the empty grave clothes. And this one's actually more significant than I thought as I, I was studying it, because this looks like what convinced John. It looks like what stuck in Peter's mind of, of maybe this is real. And we have to understand, in the embalming process, they would take about 75 pounds of ointment. And, and they would wrap the, the body limb by limb separately, so it wasn't just the mummy with the little toilet paper around the outside. They, they would dip the cloth in the embalming fluid, and they would wrap each limb, um, sing, and then they would wrap the body, and then it would harden very quickly. And so it would create this cocoon of linen in the shape of a man's body. And so this hardened grave clothes, they walk in and they see it still shaped like a man's body. The problem is, there's no man. There is no way out of the grave clothes without destroying them. Unless God does a work. And so when John says that, and John sees that in John 20, it says he immediately believed. Peter, it's stuck in his head, like I said. And so these are just five of the facts out of this story that show us that this story is true. The only explanation, the only possible explanation is he is risen. It's not a fanciful idea like the Easter bunny. Sorry, kids. He really did rise. Some might ignore it. Some might mock it. But the evidence is clear. And so we're to be in awe of the power of the resurrection, but we're to know the facts of the resurrection and be convinced of the facts of the resurrection. But the last part of the witness we see in Matthew 28 there in this story, we see that they encountered the person of the resurrection. See, what was clear from the passage, the tomb was empty and they met Jesus alive. That's convincing. That's convincing. If there's a report this week that I've passed away and you all attend my funeral and hopefully say some nice things, and then a week after that, I walk up to you and say, let's have lunch. Might that be troubling? Just a little bit? You, you have a choice. Either you're seeing a ghost, or I, I didn't die in our case. Or I rose from the dead, I guess, and, and we're not going there. The, the proof of seeing him is amazing. And we, we read that, right? He went to Mary and Mary and said, greetings. He said, I'm here. And they fell at his feet. They touched him and he was real. 
We know the story right after that is the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus just appears and is walking with them. And they don't get who it is because Jesus is dead. And finally, as Jesus explains Scripture and sits down and blesses the food, they're like, oh, Jesus is alive. And Jesus is gone. And so they run back and they tell. So we see seeing and telling again. We then know that Jesus went to the disciples. Turn over to Luke 24, sort of the the second half of of our text today. Luke 24, we'll look at verse 36. Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, this is the disciples. They're all up in the room and there's a little bit of a buzz. Mary and Mary have said, He's risen. Peter and John went to the tomb, saw the empty grave clothes, and, and some believe, some don't. They, understandably so. And in Luke twenty four thirty six it says, And as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. I don't know what I would say. That, that's, that's as perfect as it can get. Because they're trying to figure out what's going on and Jesus doesn't come through the door. He just is there. He shows up. He says, Peace to you. And they look at him and they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And so again, they go to the ghost idea, which is why the, the women touched his feet. And, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you, as you see that I have. And so he invites them to touch the scars. He invites them to know the facts. But what they're doing is encountering the person of the resurrection, right? They are encountering Jesus Christ alive. Now you and I may not see Him in the flesh. You and I may not see a bodily Jesus Christ on this planet. But we encounter Him just the same. We encounter Him as we come to Him and give Him our hearts. We encounter Him as He is with us through difficulty. We encounter Him when we realize He gives us forgiveness of sins if we just repent and come to Him. And so when He said this, He showed them His hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, again, the mixed emotions, not sure this is true, but I'm really happy, but I'm still not sure this is true. And they were marveling. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Now, I don't know that He actually had to eat. But again, he's showing them that he is real, that he really rose from the dead and he's human. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Oh, come on, we didn't even have a tri-tip? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And so they encountered the person of the resurrection. They got to face to face. We do in our hearts and in our spirits as we see him work. And we know that there were many witnesses. First Corinthians says there were over 500 witnesses. Again, hard to question. The guy that we put to death, 500 people now are saying they've seen him, spent time with him, ate fish with him. And he presented himself alive to many as a proof. Gary Habermas sort of takes this idea of the empty tomb and the appearances to people. And he says, did Jesus die on the cross? Did he appear later to people? If you establish those two things, you've made the case because dead people normally don't do that. Fair enough. 
But also for us, I want to I think through encountering the person of the resurrection. That means more to us than just seeing Him bodily. It means encountering the work of Jesus Christ. It means thinking about what Christ accomplished. And actually in, in the very next section in Luke, this is where Jesus goes with them. He goes, it's not just about seeing me personally. It's about what I've accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. We're going to see it in Acts again too, but in Luke 24, 44, where you have your Bibles open. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he's establishing the facts of of his death. You saw it. You were there. Resurrection. I'm in front of you. That's a pretty good proof. But then he goes beyond to his work. And he says, And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So again, we have the word witnesses. But now he expands it to not just the resurrection, but to the forgiveness of sins. And if we're to be witnesses of Christ, we need to tell people about the resurrection, but we need to tell them about the forgiveness of sins. And in this case, it says, if we repent. And repent means to turn around, to do a U-turn, to say, I am wrong, He is right. If we repent of our sins and give them to Jesus, He promises forgiveness. Because on the cross, He said, it is finished. And He rose from the dead, proving that the penalty was completely paid for. Nothing was left. Village, if you repent and turn to Christ... Your sins are forgiven fully, freely, and forever. And there is no shame. There is no guilt. Those are washed away. Whatever is in your past, Jesus can take care of. That's encountering the person of the resurrection. In Acts 13, another passage that talks about witnesses and and witnessing the, the resurrection, he adds again the forgiveness idea. Acts 13 Um, Verses 30, 31, and, and 37. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So again, witnesses resurrection. Can't, can't divide the two. Then in 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him He who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed of by the law of Moses. Encountering the person of the resurrection means two things. Forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness from everything we've done because Christ paid for it. Freedom from the bondage of sin, from having to sin. Freedom from from the guilt and the shame of sin because Jesus conquered it. That's what encountering the person of the resurrection means. So then if you turn the page over, and this is just sort of taking the same principles and talking about, okay, how can we tell? Because they not only saw, but they told, point number two, if you're convinced of the resurrection, be witnesses of the resurrection. See, if you put a witness on the stand and they don't say anything, we don't call them witnesses. 
We call them just sitting there having lunch or something. I don't know. We expect them to say something. If we have experienced salvation, if we have experienced the impact of the resurrection, we are called to tell, to talk, to speak. In verses 7 and 10 of our Matthew passage, the instruction to, to Mary and Mary was, Go tell! The disciples on the road to Emmaus went and told. In, in Luke 24, this gathering of the disciples trying to figure out what's going on. You are witnesses. The overall command for us, and that was them at the early church, for us as we continue the work of God, we're to be witnesses. That's why Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We are actually supposed to tell people about the resurrection. Use our voices. Use our words. We say that to our kids, right? Use your words. Use your words. We are actually commanded to tell people about the resurrection. Now we can look at that and say, but the resurrection is weird. No one's going to believe it. Yes, they will if you know how to defend it. Yes, it might be weird, but that's what gives it power. The resurrection is the stamp that says the cross and the victory over sin is complete and true. And so don't exclude the resurrection when you tell people about Jesus. It's a powerful testimony to the gospel. The gospel is, in fact, incomplete without it. And so taking those three points, the power and the, the, the truth and the person of the resurrection, as we tell people, about, as we live life, we should speak with excitement about the power of the resurrection. Be excited about it. It's like I started talking about Ken and Patty, and if they never even mentioned their son's marriage, what do you think? Do they not like her? Are they, are they in denial? I mean, no, we talk about things we're excited about. And so be excited about the resurrection. Be amazed by it. That's why I wanted to go through the story and sort of walk with the, the ladies to the tomb. This was an impossible event. People don't just rise from the dead. No other religion, none of their leaders rose from the dead. No other religion has a God that is still alive. But Jesus is. But Jesus is. And so think about the resurrection. Death was reversed. Jesus was brought back to life, but just think medically for a minute. A couple days later, you already have brain damage. You already have decay. The body is, it has shut down. The blood has stopped. The cells are dying. This wasn't just bringing him back to life. It was restoring him. It was restoring to full brain function, full bodily function, and then a glorified body. This is amazing. There's no smell. Sorry, this is where my brain goes. I'm like, if he's been in the grave that long, woo! No, he was fully restored, even at the smell level. And so we should be in awe of the power of the resurrection, but we should speak with excitement about it. This is amazing. Tell people about the resurrection without embarrassment. Yeah, even Paul had some people mock him for it, but that gets to the the next point. Know the facts and defend the truth of the resurrection. Read some good books on the resurrection. We, we have um, uh, books called The Case for Easter, 
We have a number of other books that, that either any of us as pastors can share with you that will help you know how to defend the resurrection. Here's the thing. It is one of the easiest events to defend and prove because there are so many proofs of it, both in the Bible and history, secular history. So know the facts and know how to defend. Don't be afraid of objections. You know, some of the objections you might hear, well, Jesus didn't actually die. This is the swoon theory. You know, the cross was really hard on him and he sort of passed out. and They didn't know he was dead, so they put him in the tomb. And three days later, he woke up and walked out. There are all kinds of problems with this. The first is the Romans were experts at killing. And they verified he was dead. They stuck a spear in his side and water and blood had already separated. This, this objection is ridiculous. Don't tell them that. Engage it winsomely and engage. Well, okay, engage it with questions. Well, you know, the Romans killed a lot of people. They executed a lot of people. They verified he was dead on their own lives and they had never gotten this wrong that we know of in history. Do you think they got it wrong this time? And then you can ask the question, okay, if he was near death, if he had fainted for two days and hadn't eaten or, or drank anything for two days, how did he roll the one and a half ton stone away? It's a, it's a legitimate question because the tomb was empty. Secular history says the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And then you can ask the other one we talked about, so how did he get out of the grave clothes? Because that was a pretty good trick. They would have been crusty. You know, Jesus really died. You know, another objection you may hear is, well, it was the wrong tomb. They got lost. The ladies got lost, even though they had watched it two days before. The disciples got lost, even though they were there watching it. The Jewish authorities who put the stamp on it, they got lost. The angels, uh, they, they used Apple Maps instead of Google Maps. And the Roman guards. No, this is... Sorry for those that are Apple... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they use Google Maps instead of Apple Maps. <laughs> now, again, the text in history gives us so much proof that they knew where the tomb was. And the tomb was empty. And the Jewish authorities who hated the risen Christ never were able to show anything different. And we can go on. Another objection is the stolen body, the conspiracy theory, that this band of disciples somehow overcame the guards and um, paid off the guards, but yet, and somehow rolled away the stone in their depressed and despondent way and stole the body. What's interesting is all of these objections still assume an empty tomb. And they don't answer the biggest problem they have. The tomb's empty because Jesus is alive. And so let's defend the resurrection. It's true. Let's know that it's true. And finally, tell how your life has been changed by the person of the resurrection. If we're to be witnesses, use your life story. How has Jesus changed you? What is the impact of forgiveness and freedom on your life? What is the impact of having peace with God and peace with your past and and knowing that your sin is wiped away? How are you different because of Jesus? And what does that forgiveness and what does that grace mean to you? You know, if you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, I am so glad you're here. This is the Sunday to be here. Because you hear about the resurrected Lord. He, he, he rose from the dead and that should be the proof that you need to know He is God. But what I want you to hear is that 
as He died on the cross and then rose again the third day, He took the penalty for your sin and my sin on Himself. A sin that requires eternal death, that requires punishment. If God is just at all, it requires God to discipline and and punish. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, to take our place. And He did on the cross. But we have to repent and turn to Him and give our life to Him. And I implore you, if you don't know Christ, today's the day. Today's the day to say, this is amazing. I didn't realize how, how true this was. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to let Him change me. I'm going to experience His forgiveness for my past. I am going to experience His freedom for my future and the knowledge that I will have eternal life with Him. That's living the resurrection. I implore you to do that today. For those that know Him, as we go out on our witnesses, if we're to, if we're to show that we're changed by the, the person of the resurrection, we've got to live like it. We've got to live the resurrection in joy. And so that means, number one, realizing our sins really are taken care of. They're forgiven. That shame is gone. And so don't keep living in them. Stop sinning. I don't know how else to say that. That's the power of the resurrection. He's given us that ability. And if we're to be witnesses for it, we've got to be changed people. Don't enjoy sin. Don't accept sin. Don't wallow in the mud that Jesus died and rose again to take care of. Now, I think if we're, if we're changed people by the resurrection, it will show in our worship. As, as Mary and Mary fell down and clung to Jesus' feet, they couldn't help but worship at the resurrected Christ because of what He's done. And, and if we know Christ, if we know the risen Christ in that way, we won't be able to do anything but worship. We will sing as loud as we can. We will praise God because what else can we do for what He's given us? And finally, if we're to live the resurrection, I think we need to live a hope-filled life. You know, you know people. You know people that live a hope-filled life and you know people that live a drama-filled life. Who do you like to hang out with? I'm going for the drama. Life's so much more interesting. No! We want people that have hope. Because Jesus secured our future. He gave us the perfect hope. In 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that idea of a living hope is that I am showing by my actions, I have hope in Jesus Christ. I am showing by my actions, I know who wins in the end. And I'm not worried. And this doesn't matter what's going on in my life right now. It doesn't matter the hard situations. It doesn't matter the trials. We have a hope through the resurrection, Peter says, of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because we have an inheritance of a permanent future in God's presence in perfect relationship with Him. That's living hope. That's living like a changed person. Let let me ask you a question. How many of you today have had your life changed by Jesus Christ? There's a few hands. There's a lot of hands. That's 200 people with a living hope that are going to leave this room and be testimony, be witnesses to the resurrection. If we choose to be. If we're willing to tell 
if we're willing to have hope, if we're willing to rejoice. We want to do something and, and end the sermon today as worship team's coming back up. I want to describe a way that, that we want to put into practice a way to be witnesses. I want to help you out, okay? And we're going to call it the Titus Initiative. And in the Titus Initiative, we want to give you tools to reach out to people, to start these conversations, to be witnesses. And this is from Titus 3.14. And it says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so based on that verse, we want to say, okay, how can we be witnesses? And for the next four weeks, we have a table set up out in the lobby and and we've put just a whole number of gift cards on the table. And they're gift cards for gas and groceries. And what what we challenge you to do, and and this is from our benevolent ministry, and, and we are always looking for ways of how we can help people. And what we'd like to do is have 200 people helping us in our benevolent ministry. And, and so for each family, we'd like you to take a gift card, if, if there's some. I know there's, um, there's a limited amount, but we'll add more next week if they all go. Take a gift card and think through and pray through that the Holy Spirit would put someone on your heart to bless with that gift card. Maybe someone that has a need that you know. Maybe someone going through a hardship that you know. Maybe a neighbor. And, and I, would, I would like to, in, in the idea of being witnesses... If you can pray that God would put someone on your heart that doesn't know him, then, then that would be awesome. And use the card as an opportunity to start a conversation or to continue a relationship. And so you may go to your neighbor and, and here's, don't do this. I think you're really needy, so I have something for you. No, no, don't do that. But to take the card and say, you know what? My church is doing this Titus initiative and we're looking to bless people with this. And so I'd like to give you this card. If you don't need it, give it to someone else, but bless someone with this. So this isn't something you give to some stranger on the corner or someone you don't know, but who might God want you to bless and to start a conversation and to obey Titus 3.14 and do something to help them? You know, if you have a neighbor that's out of work, go to them today or tomorrow and say, hey, you know what? Because of what God's done for me and and, and our church, we want to help you. And we just want to be there for you and bless you with this. And see what God does. Table's going to be right outside the door. And and you'll see some cork boards behind it. Because starting next week, I'm going to have some cards. And I'd like you to fill out a card and say how you used it. No names. But say, hey, I gave it to my neighbor who's out of work. I gave it to someone whose mom just went in the hospital. I gave it to someone who just is despondent and needed some encouragement. And let's be witnesses. What could happen in Orange County if 200 witnesses leave this room? I think some really cool things. I think the kingdom of God will expand. And God will use that to show this world that we have a living hope. So we're going to sing a couple more songs. We're going to have the Lord's Supper together. But I'd like to start with singing about that living hope. I'd like you to stand with me this morning. Let's praise God for the living hope that he gives us. This is what makes us witnesses. Let's sing together. But this is a chance for us to remember our living hope. And it's so appropriate to celebrate this on Easter weekend where we have the cross and the resurrection. And this is for those that have chosen to follow Jesus with their lives. And again, if you haven't, now's the day. Talk to me afterwards and let's take care of that. 
But this is a chance where you are saying, I am following Jesus with my life. And the crackers represent Jesus' body, the body that was broken on the cross, the body that was given willingly on our behalf. And the juice represents Christ's blood. And that blood is the payment for our sins. That's the, that should have been my blood, should have been your blood. But that's the payment for our sins. And by taking it, we are acknowledging that it's a symbol of that forgiveness, a symbol of salvation. And so we'd like to celebrate with the Lord's Supper today. And as we sing, as worship team sings, you can just listen to the song, you can sing along. But let's prepare our hearts to remember the person of the resurrection and what Christ has done. Lord God, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross and three days later to be resurrected, proving that death and sin are conquered. We thank you for the difference you make in our lives as you are with us. You are forgiving us. You have given us freedom. And Lord, may we be witnesses for you. May we do what we've been tasked to do. But it's an honor to do and a privilege to do, Lord, that we can adopt more people into the family of God, that more people will worship, that more people will know the risen Savior. Lord, thank you. We remember you right now. Your name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. I'd like to end our service by proclaiming that He is King of kings, proclaiming and celebrating the risen Lord. And then we'll go out and be witnesses, and we'll pray about that as we go. Father, we praise You. We praise the King of kings, the risen Lord, the One who gave the Holy Spirit to His church, the reason we are here. So Lord, now I pray for Village as we go out, that we would be witnesses. Lord, I pray that we would make an impact for the kingdom, that we would make a a resurrection impact on those we meet this week, that they would see a living hope, that they would see the joy of the resurrection, Lord. Oh, help us to be different. Help us to not give in to sin and to see victory over sin. But Lord, as we do the Titus Initiative, I pray that we would find people that need to know you and that you would open conversations, Lord. And I pray for souls to be saved through this as we are witnesses to the gospel and witnesses to your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that we can worship and celebrate. Thank you for the resurrected King. In your name, amen.